This is our Fireside Stories, talking junk, telling stories about South Africa. Hey, babe. Hey. Okay. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Just a little bit. Always. All right. right, can I tell you a story? I would love to hear a story. I've got a good one. That's what we hear. Yes, right. Many years ago, there was a small boy who lived on a mission station in a village in Zambia where the cheetah and hyena roamed at night and he breathed in the dust and dirt of the land from the moment he woke up until the moment he fell asleep. Every Sunday morning, this little boy went with his family to church. It was a red brick and mud building shaped like a cross. There were windows cut into the sides, but no glass. The air could circulate inside the building. And on this morning, he was dressed in his best clothes as he always was every Sunday. And he was seated neatly on his stool at the back of the church in between his mom and his big sister. And next to his big sister was his next big sister. And he sat there and he looked out the window and he knew that like every Sunday, this was going to be particularly dull. He would be sitting there for three hours. And on this particular Sunday, he so happened to have a lady with a really large head sitting in front of him. Mm. So he was staring out the window. The minister stood up in front of the church and he started to speak Mbunda, which was the language of the people. And he didn't understand what that meant. He didn't understand the language. His dad did and his mom did and they could translate for him. And the minister started to speak. And as he started, even though the boy didn't understand what he was saying, he knew something big was happening. He knew that something significant was happening. The minister had asked the congregation to be very careful because there was a Ndumba in the district. Ndumba is a lion. And this wasn't just any lion. This was a man-eating lion. Now, this Ndumba was not hunting as it normally would. This Ndumba had already nabbed a couple of people and was likely to target more. Maybe it was hungry. The boy wondered if a lion had a big enough stomach to hold an entire human. How was it eating people? Maybe a child, but not a grown man like Dad or Chiziwe. Now, Chiziwe, who was as tall as Jack's beanstalk, would peer in at the boy and his sisters through the kitchen window that stood high above the sink in his house on the mission station. The whites of his eyes were like great moons casting light on a multitude of minor sins. The boy wilted under the force of that clay. Ooh, it gave him shivers. No, surely not Chiziwe. The lion wouldn't eat Chiziwe. He was too large. A child. Hmm, a small child. Maybe a four-year-old child. Entirely possible, the boy thought. In fact, he thought all the way back from church. He thought and he thought. And then he kind of forgot about the lion. But... A couple of days after the minister's announcement, it was a hot day 
and everyone was still being careful, but the boy had forgotten. He was playing with a group of village children when a group of frantic villagers descended upon the house, gesticulating wildly. Come and see, come and see. The boy and his dad followed them to the outer fence of the hospital compound on the mission station. The fence was tall, taller than Chiziwe, but only a tiny bit, and made of grass and sticks. The sick people stayed in grass huts on the inside of the fence, and the villagers pointed to the ground. What did they see? Lion spore circling round and round the fence. The Ndumba wanted to eat the sick people. Better than a four-year-old, although the boy didn't think they'd be as tasty, too thin, too sick, but he was glad nonetheless. Now, there were no guns in this village. The people had come to the boy's dad for help. So, being a clever man, he poisoned some meat and left it out near the hospital that night, hoping that the man-eating Ndumba would be enticed. The next morning, the meat was gone. The villagers followed the lion's tracks and eventually, a long way away, they found the Ndumba and it was dead. The men tied the beast to a branch and carried it home and there was much celebrating. The word spread and people congregated. They gathered in the middle of the mission station and built a great bonfire to the heavens ready to consecrate the death of the man-eater. But the little boy did not know yet that the lion was dead. His dad came to him and took his hand, leading him towards a very big fire, which was strange. It was the middle of the day. This wasn't normally a thing that happened. This fire was much bigger than Chiziwe. Why was there a fire? The boy wondered. As he and his dad approached hand in hand, the villagers parted like Moses in the Red Sea. The boy loved that story. He turned around, looking back just in case. No lion. The heat got closer, and as the way forward opened up, the boy noticed what looked like a large brown shape in front of him. He grasped his dad's hand tighter, another quick glance behind him, and then he looked on with gunner vision. Quite suddenly, the shape jumped. The Ndumba, right there in front of him. Dad, Dad, there it is. His first taste of fear. It was sour in his mouth. Had nobody else seen the creature move? Sensing his son's terror, the boy's father bent down and looking reassuringly at his little boy said, the lion is dead. Somebody had stood on the branch to which the lion was still tethered, turning the creature into an effigy of its former self. Noticed only by a small boy who didn't know any better, if only for just a few seconds. The end. The end. <laughs> so that's story. That little boy is my dad, and he told that to me 
and it's another story that our kids love to listen to about the little boy and the man-eating lion and the first time he remembers being afraid. I'm sure there's a bit when, not in that story, but just in general for life on that mission station where the people wouldn't leave their houses at night for fear of predators. Yep. My dad said that they used to have like a chamber pot in their bedrooms because there was the toilet was outside the house mm-hmm. and there was absolutely zero way they were getting up to go to the toilets in the dark because he said he could hear the kind of growls of the wild cats, mm. the leopards um, and the lions and there were hyenas around. So there was absolutely no way. So if they needed to use the toilet, the chamber pot, it was. Mm. It's like a whole different life. <laughs> it's really, it's really quite something mm. to think about. Um, luckily, however, in Africa, what's quite cool is that you have these amazing animals, not literally on your doorstep as many Europeans and Americans and people from other countries like to think, but certainly kind of a stone's throw away Mm -hmm. in safari parks and sometimes in the wild, although poaching is obviously a big thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you have any cool stories about some wild animals. I do have some cool yeah, stories about share wild them. animals. But bef- before I share some <laughs> stories about wild animals, yes. there is once there is another story about maybe not a story, but a fact of life that your dad recalled from living in Zambia. Mm. Something to do with children's feet. Children's feet? Or people's feet in general, and certain creatures that liked to make oh, their homes. There were those little worm things. Little worms? I don't know. I can't remember. So as I recall the story, there were these, <laughs> yeah. there were these worms yeah. that would burrow yeah. into the soles of your feet. Yes. That was where they would make their homes. And... Obviously, that could be quite, quite painful. I imagine yes. they would have probably laid their eggs and had their larvae, larvae, their larvae, in the soles of your feet. And if you didn't take care of it, your feet could be ravaged by these worms. Yes. So what my what I remember is my dad saying my grandmother used to try used to beg them to wear shoes so they didn't get these like worms burrowing into their feet but they absolutely did not wear shoes Mm. i don't know they dealt with the worm problem somehow but Mm. it didn't definitely didn't incentivize them to put anything on their feet Mm. that's terrifying (laughs) slightly yeah it's a bit like that worm that finds its way up your ureter and then like make and lays its eggs in your bladder or kidneys. That's or a bit worse. Mm. Isn't that from the Amazon? Yes. I'm <laughs> Close. Okay, so I have I have stories of animals, but then also a story of wild African animals. I'll tell a couple of them. Go on. The one memory I have is of going to a nature reserve type resort called Dikololo with mm-hmm. a friend 
and this is one of those cool places where you would stay in a you would stay in almost like a mini lodge or something, you know, a proper, you'd stay in a property um, or there would be properties all over the place, the usual, there'd be swimming pools and sports facilities like tennis courts and squash courts and so on, all, you know, the nice, nice things, I guess, that you might come to expect from a resort of that flavour. But you'd also have the wildlife roaming around. So you might wake up in the morning and there'd be zebra outside your window or you might see a kudu run past outside it's quite cool because you had this almost these quite close encounters with wildlife another cool thing that you could do is you could ride bicycles and at that time i loved riding riding my bicycle i'd ride my bicycle everywhere even at home my friend and i had i can't remember if we had taken our bicycles or if we had just rented bicycles from the facility anyway we would ride around and I remember the one night we thought it was a good idea forgetting that in the middle of nowhere <laughs> it is literally pitch black at night we thought oh we'll set out at dusk for a little cycle um, <laughs> so we got on our bikes and you know we head off down the there were unpaved un roads but they were they were roads nonetheless but there was they were sand roads so they could sometimes be quite difficult to ride on because they were quite sandy. Um, anyways, we were busy riding and we got quite, not too far, but far enough away where it was dark and we had to, we were still not so close back to the, back to the property where we were staying on the resort. Um, so we had, well, the, the one main challenge was that we could hardly see the road. Um, but it was the as I recall, there was a moon of a sort in the sky, so it wasn't it wasn't absolutely pitch black, but it, it was very difficult to see. And I remember riding with my friend, and all of a sudden, we're trying to see where we're going along these dark sandy roads, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we just see what looked like hundreds of white lights looking at us, and they all sort of did so at the same time. Um, and you know the reflection that you get off, you know, the retina of a cat's eyes or something like that. And we, we both stopped really suddenly. Like, a million-eyed beast! Yeah. Well, we knew, we knew it wasn't <laughs> the million-eyed beast. But we did think that it could be many potentially dangerous animals. Or at least we couldn't see what animals they were, so that in itself made it scary. Lions. Cheetahs. Of course, they're not going to let lions and cheetahs <laughs> roam around a park with people. Of course they are. Marlith Park, come on. Marlith anyway. Park did not have lions and cheetahs on the reserve. Uh-huh. Just for clarity. That would be dumb. Or cool. Or dumb. Carry on. Or dumb, yes. Thank you for the interjection. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not unused to it. Anyways, it was one of those moments where we weren't expecting it. Out of the dark, all of a sudden, these eyes looked at us. We first of all we stopped, then we panicked, and we just rode as fast as we as fast as we could, hoping that we wouldn't ride into a ditch or a lake or a tree <laughs> or something. <laughs> Inevitably, we knew that it wasn't anything dangerous, but still, it you know, it came as a surprise. So that's one one thing I remember about African animals. 
And you still managed to make it home in the pitch black. Yes. That's pretty impressive. Well, well done. They weren't, being a nature reserve, there weren't lots of route choices, if you want to say that. Yeah. We, we knew the general direction we had to go. And when we got close enough, you could see the, Light. the lights from the mm-hmm. properties and so on. So um, that was a very, very cool place. The other memory I have is, which actually involves you, dear one. Um, <laughs> then it will be good <laughs> and awesome. It's not good because you're in it. It just happens it that you're in it. Yeah. Um, it's this really great game park called Marlith Park, which is just outside the Kruger National Park in South Africa, which is, as a Kruger National Park is notorious, Marlith Park, maybe not so much. The cool thing about Martha Park is it's just outside, it's just the other side of the fence of the Kruger National Park, but it was similar to the first resort I mentioned in the sense that animals would roam around the properties. And you'd ha- that seems something quite strange, at least here, that seems like something that would never happen. Health and safety. Health and safety. Obviously health and safety, but also there's almost this understanding that people were naturally a little weary of animals. You don't treat them like pets. You have to have respect. But I guess that's something that Africans generally understand. It's not like, oh, pretty lion, let me get out of my car and go give lion a pet. In this place, you would at night time, you would hear the lions roaring from kilometers away, but they sounded so close. I remember sitting around, funnily enough, a campfire <laughs> just outside, just outside the little hut thing we were staying in with my sister and her then boyfriend at the time and you'd hear the lines roar and the roar was so loud it would sound really close and then also remember the other thing I remember is also the purr of the I don't know if that's the right word but the purr of the sort of alpha male elephants I don't know if you remember it yes it's quite it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to mimic but it's like a very deep purr almost sounds like a growl um, but I think the game ranger at the resort, or maybe at a different resort, explained to us that that was almost like the way that they communicate with the, the their crew, with the <laughs> with their crew, the drive. Um, I guess as the alpha male, you know, getting them to do what they they need to do. So, but on one particular day, maybe we're getting a little bit too familiar with the animals being nearby, having had a warthog come into the. Um, I can't remember. Did it come into... I think it might have come actually into the hut. It came onto the veranda. Onto the veranda. And we ran inside. But what about the thing when we were sitting around the campfire? Do you not remember? We were sitting there talking junk. Yes. Is that... that was that a warthog? We couldn't see it. No. And we heard it. No, no. It's the same story I'm talking about. That was, oh. the, that was the lion. But bec- No way, man. There was a creature that was walking actually close to where we were sitting. And we could not see it. And we ran inside. Julia and I ran. Well, I think, okay. I think it was the same night. I think it might have been the first night. So obviously, yeah. being from, being Valleys from Johannesburg <laughs> and not used to hearing the sounds of real wildlife other than people's dogs. Um, there was some sort of shuffling, shuffling in the bush. Yes. And it started to draw closer to the point where it sounded really close again. Being in Africa, you have your little fire, which gave light out for, I don't know, a very small radius, a couple of meters. But then around that, it was 
pitch black so you could literally see nothing you could obviously see the hut where you stayed but that was only in a single direction everything else around you was, was dark and so from behind us look away from the light you could hear there was something in the brush so we ran well at first we heard it and it sounded like it was a fair a safe enough distance away but it did progressively get closer and closer to the point where i think we were all at the point where we all we were all a little bit nervous but terrified obviously you were terrified <laughs> you and my sister were terrified because yeah. you jumped up and ran into the house yeah. preceded by coming. my sister's boyfriend and myself <laughs> because we just i don't know followed the crowd it's like i don't, I don't want to i don't want to be eaten by whatever's in the bush um we, we had seen during our stay obviously there was gorillas gorillas they were definitely not gorillas <laughs> we had seen during our stay Baboons and large troops of baboons, obviously they have like large teeth and they can be very aggressive. So when it's dark, your mind obviously runs wild. It's a little bit like when you swim in the ocean, you're like, what is beneath me? There could be a bazillion things beneath me. There probably isn't anything, but because your imagination runs wild, you make up things in your head. The other story from Marlith Park is the story of the giraffe. <laughs> so, uh, if a number of times the giraffe had, they they seemed to come in groups where they would walk quite as they do quite slowly past our particular little hut, which was surrounded by, would you call it brush of a sort? There was yeah, definitely like trees, like bush and brush, thorny tree. Those thorny trees is at the Grundurings, yeah, Grundurings, yeah, okay. Um, they seemed to walk by every day, and one day we thought, I don't know why we thought this. It was like, oh, it's a good idea. Let's see how close we can get to these giraffe. So they were they were maybe, I don't know, 50 meters away from the property. We decided we'd be really clever, and we'd be quiet, and we'd like slink up to them quite carefully, like hiding amongst the brush, and we would do this and try going as quietly as we could. And I don't remember what happened. I don't know if someone stood on a stick or something, but all of a sudden, when we were maybe very close it felt it felt as if we were in arm's reach of this giraffe but i don't think it was quite that close it was maybe five meters yeah way. this this thing got a fright this large male giraffe got a fright and started to make make a run started to make a run for it a move but because it moved so quickly all of a sudden you and my sister's then boyfriend <laughs> panicked <laughs> screamed both of you screamed both of you in a very high-pitched voice as well. Or like a... <laughs> and turned ran. and ran as fast as you could through the, th- through the, the, through brush. the brush. The dwellings. Yeah, which I'm pretty sure you... Probably both of you got a little stuck in. Again, as, as we tend to do as a herd, my sister and me followed you. We <laughs> ran after you. I'm not sure why, because the giraffe was running in the other direction. But I guess because it's such a large creature, it did seem... You know, the funniest part about that was Marcel and I running and I turned to look at him and I didn't even know he was running with me. I just ran. I turned to look at him and he was really long and lanky and tall. And it was like his limbs were just flapping everywhere. And I looked at him and I couldn't stop laughing. I don't know if you have that thing when you're running away. It's almost like you're being a naughty child. I don't know what it is. And literally, I was crying. I was laughing so much with thorns stuck in me and Marcel next to me, like flailing, his limbs flailing all over the place. It was hilarious. 
It was hilarious. Obviously, I don't remember that bit because you two, I don't know. <laughs> we were speedy. You were so far. You were so far ahead of we us. We were gone. Yeah, you know, we're good friends. You can die. I'm how, sh- how did your boyfriend die? He was eaten by a giraffe. <laughs> said Do you no remember? one ever. Uh, well, there was a monkey I ran away from as well. Also, let's just be clear, because. <laughs> You get lots of types of monkeys. This was a vervet monkey, which is so rather small. Dude, those it's almost things, like a capuchin. It's so tiny. They steal your food. Have you seen it? They once stole my friend's lunch when we were hiking and hissed. It went like... <sighs> your cats hissed and you weren't scared of them. Dude, monkeys, man. Cats don't have, like, monkey teeth. Okay, so wait. Was this before or after <laughs> Outbreak. <laughs> After outbreak, after maybe outbreak. twelve years after outbreak, mate. Yeah, not out- quite twelve years after outbreak. Yeah, whatevs. Clearly, it was lurking in my subconscious somewhere. But that monkey sounds like you're fifty year old. Oh my word! Outbreak came out in like nineteen ninety. I don't know. Eight, seven. This was two thousand and four. <laughs> I'm ballparking it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That works out to 12. <laughs> uh, anyway, monkeys, don't trust them. That's all I'm saying. I do have a story. I have no recollection of where we were. But I think I was the opposite of you. I might have been a little bit like a tourist. It's like, oh, cute monkey, cute monkey. Um, I might have offered it some of some of my food. And I don't know how it did this, but it stole one of my slops, my slip slops. Dude, don't trust him. I don't you. even remember how I got it back. I think it was a pretty... What happened to your food? I think it... I don't know. All I remember is... All I seem to remember, and you know how reliable memory is sometimes, but all I seem to remember is running after this monkey who had my slip slop. <laughs> I don't even know how I got it back. You got it back? I did get it back. Because it was, again, a vervet monkey, which is quite small... Uh, yes, I don't have the largest feet in the world, but my flip-flop was pretty big relative my slip-slop. My Probably s- smelt bad and so dropped it. My slip-slop was relatively big compared to the monkey. For record, my feet don't smell bad. <laughs> Never had that problem. Um, I think it was just a cumbersome thing that didn't taste much good. It just threw it away. Uh, yeah. Good times. Okay, so Marlith Park, and then I know that your cousin Tracy, who lives in Umtanzini. Umtanzini. Yeah. There's some pretty cool things, crazy things. I'm retelling a story that was told to me, so I might have bastardized some of it. But there's the story told of my of my cousin, one of my cousins who lived in Umtenzini in Kwanzaa Natal, which is um, her husband was a sugarcane farmer. She married a sugarcane farmer and living in relative, the relative wild, obviously this is cultivated land, so it's not wild, but there are wild creatures that you encounter, such as the cane rats, which are rats as large as dogs that um, were a bit of a pest. Um, Anyways, there's this the story of them having a pool behind their house, and if you imagine, there's a you know a, an an old relatively old farmhouse, 
with a small pool behind it nothing you know nothing nothing too large some some grass around the house and then basically just sugarcane so within the sugarcane there would have been lots of different types of creatures um and they also had this really large dog this dog called Leroy which felt like it had a head as large as a lion he was a cross between a mastiff and a burble burbles are very large south african farmer's guard dog hence the name burble um the very large dog who was um a companion but obviously also a guard a guard dog the story goes that my cousin went out into the backyard i don't know if she was necessarily going to the pool to swim but she went out towards the swimming pool and all of a sudden, from out of this grass, she sees this huge snake raise its head. The snake was the snake was so so big as it raised its you know when they make that hood and they raise I don't know what it's I don't know what it's called but when it rises, the snake was so large that it looked her in the eye. Now I'm I'm one point nine meters tall. My cousin's probably a similar height to me, so it gives you a sense of how large this snake was and obviously it doesn't represent the whole snake it just represents the parts of it that it could lift its head turns out this turns out that this large snake was what's known as a forest cobra large poisonous cobra um but who should come to the rescue but leroy the lion-headed dog <laughs> <coughs> and he, he runs in to save the day and i don't know how exactly he saved the day i don't know if he i don't know if he necessarily i don't know if he didn't he stand in front of Tracy? I think she. I think he yeah. stood in between Tracy and the snake. I don't think he actually went and you know necessarily attacked the snake. No, I think he just, he just yeah. stood there as a as a protective guard dog, um, and yeah, you know, you obviously don't know what's going through the dog's head. Maybe he intuitively knew that if he just stood still, that it would go away. Eventually, the snake turned and went away. But you know, you kind of think. Imagine living in that scenario where yeah. You know, there's. You know, it's quite common that there's, boomslung, which are poisonous, and then, puff adders all over the show. They you know they were really common, and things like, forest cobras, but that was, a normal part of life. Speaking of your stories of snakes, my dad, same mission station, um, he went to a boarding school, um, quite far away. He used to have to catch an aeroplane there. Still in Zambia, but, not that close to the mission station. Um, so he went to this boarding school and one day they were playing outside and the gardener saw a gaboon viper. So, you know, those have those mm. massive fat ass Large, heads, fat heads yeah. Yeah. Um, in the strawberry patch and he killed it. I don't know if he hits it over the head with a spade, I think. And then all the boys at the boarding school were quite excited about this. So they, they were touching this dead snake and my dad said they... Some of them picked it up, including him, and had photos with the snake. Because, um, you know, obviously they were quite dangerous. And standing, having a picture with a gaboon viper was like major street cred. Mm. So that that happened. Put the gaboon viper, gaboon viper down and went into lunch at the mess hall. And um, they're having lunch and the boarding school master was I can't remember oh Lyndon Hess was his name was sitting at the front at the teacher's table and the gardener came in and kind of bent over and started saying something to Lyndon Hess and what had happened was the gaboon viper that had been 
hits over the head with the spade and left in the strawberry patch for dead was gone. Hmm. So there were whispers. Obviously, the headmaster announced this, and there were whispers amongst the boys because had they in fact been holding a kaboon viper that was not in fact dead. Hmm. Imagine. Imagine. Imagine being the poor boy, <laughs> assuming it was simply stunned. Imagine being the poor boy or girl. Was it only boys? No, uh, girls and boys, but probably they kept were separate. Imagine being the poor child. Yeah. Holding this Gaboon Viper when it woke up. Man <laughs> alive. Or it slunk its way into someone's kind of under their bed in their mm. shoe. In Whatever. their shoe? There's a wheelie. In their very big shoe. Yeah.